then you've been raised with Christ. Seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. We're back in Colossians 3. And we looked last week at how that kind of setting our heart on things above is, is a huge part of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus, what it means to follow him. It means we experience the love of God in our hearts. Our hearts are open to him and he pours out his love within us. Paul goes on, set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. And we looked at how also to be a disciple of Jesus is not just to experience the love of Jesus, but it's to explore the depths of that love as well. It's to know it more. It's to be formed by that love. It's to journey with that together. So then Paul carries on. And he carries on with these images of dying to life. If you've been raised, put to death, for you have died, and put on this. And he talks about then expressing the love of Christ, the things that we do with our hands, the things that we live out. Paul says, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you've put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. That's one of those words we could just read and meditate on, right, for this whole time together. Here, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And we looked last week at that image of a plant, at how we experience the love of God like the sunlight, like the water that comes, that sustains us, that helps us to grow. How we explore the love of God, how we are formed and shaped by it, like our roots digging out into the soil, like, like parts of us being pruned and cut away, actually. And we looked at how we express the love of God in beauty, in flowering, in pollinating, in growing, in scattering seeds. As Paul carries on in verse 14, and above all these put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. That is, our heart, our minds, our hands, they find meaning and they find their purpose in the love of Christ from death to new life. And the fruit of love, the fruit of love is peace, isn't it? So Paul carries on, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called in one body, and be thankful. Today we're going to split up the next three verses into little chunks. And this first bit, let the peace of Christ rule in our hearts. When I see that, the peace of Christ, we might think of the peace that Jesus gives to us. Yeah, In John 14, he says, my peace I give to you. I do not give as the world gives. And what's the outcome of that peace? Therefore, don't be afraid, as Jesus 
counsels his disciples towards his death and resurrection. Don't be afraid. Trust. That peace is to know that God is bringing about new life. That through his death, he is bringing us to peace. We might think of Ephesians. He himself is our peace. He who took away the dividing wall of hostility and made the two one. An image not just of us and God, but also of us and each other. As we look around at these diverse group, this beautiful group of people in this room. Just look around. Not only are you all good looking, intelligent, fiercely bold followers of Jesus. But actually, we wouldn't be together if it wasn't for Jesus binding us together. He himself is our peace. Or we might think of that Philippians sort of peace when Paul is in prison and he writes about that peace that transcends all understanding, that guards our hearts and our minds. Let the peace of Christ rule in our hearts. The word for rule is, uh, is an interesting word, rabuo. It doesn't occur elsewhere in the New Testament. And there aren't that many words that don't occur more than once in the New Testament. It's this sense of um, to judge, to adjudicate. Um, some older translations talk about, let the peace of Christ be the umpire. Let it be the one that decides. Let it be the scales on which we weigh everything else. There's another form of that word that occurs somewhere else. It's a different, it's a compound form of this word, but it actually occurs earlier in Colossians. In Colossians 2, 16 to 19, it says, let no one disqualify you by asceticism, angel worship, visions, detachment from the head, which is Christ. It says that everything else, all of religion, is a shadow of Christ. All of the rules without the person of Christ are just an empty shadow. They are not the thing itself. And that word disqualify is a version of that same word, rebuo, that sense of we should allow our hearts to be ruled by Christ, but other people might rule us out because we don't keep to those other things. What are those other things? What are those other things that might disqualify us? What are the other things that might rule in our hearts? Well, I look around us and I, I see three things uh, and I put them all with the same letter so that we might remember them a little bit easier, which is probably my Baptist training coming out, maybe. I don't know. Um, a little bit cheesy, but we'll go with it. I think the first thing that would disqualify us is the Disney dream. I don't know if you know, but lots of the famous Disney films that we have, I didn't know this, so I'm sure you probably know it because you're far more well-read than me. A lot of the famous Disney films that we have have totally different endings. Um, in the original story of Pinocchio, Pinocchio on Pleasure Island doesn't kind of come back to this great reconciliation, but eventually he takes his conscience, Jiminy Cricket, and he stamps on him and kills him. And then it's a sad ending for Pinocchio as well at the end. At the end of The Little Mermaid, Ariel doesn't get reunited with Prince Eric. I'm, I'm sure you're all thinking, wow, what, what a preacher. He really knows his Disney. Um, <clears throat> you may not know Disney as well as me, I'm afraid, but it's, it's all right, don't worry, I forgive you. There's, there's grace for you to learn that. At the end of Ariel, he is, she isn't reunited uh, with Prince Eric. Actually, she um, watches as her prince sails away in love with another. 
and she walks out into the sea on her legs and drowns. But Disney changed the ending of all the stories to make them sugar-coated, to make them happy. And we're, maybe we're quite glad of that in some way. But actually, maybe we're also in a culture that has taken away the meaningfulness of suffering, has taken away sacrifice, has, has taught us that actually the most important thing is happiness. And actually, the most important thing is the cross. And in the cross is not happiness, but it's joy is meaning, is purpose. I was uh, talking with one of my young leaders who has given away so much of her life already to serving other people and serving the church. And they were reflecting on me, with me, that um, they felt like they had not been able to go out and celebrate and have fun like other people their age. That they'd not gone off and had their teenage rebellion and actually, in some ways, they were a little bit mournful for that. And I heard that pain. But I also had this sense of the fruit that we produce are not always for us. That's part of the gospel, right? And we have a society where we think the fruit that we produce is for us to enjoy. But the reason why a tree bears fruit is not to fertilize itself. Why does a tree bear fruit? A tree bears fruit to reproduce, right? A tree bears fruit to bear seeds, to have its seeds carried. Actually, in a culture that would look and say, is what you are doing making you happy? The peace of Christ would weigh your heart and say, is what you are doing weighted with the significance of God's gospel and his purpose? Actually, sometimes that calls for us to be rooted and established in a place rather than to move on in the pursuit of happiness. The heresy of Disney, where we believe we all are just searching for a happy ending. But actually, we're not searching for a happy ending. We have a happy beginning. We have the resurrection. We have the new life of Jesus as our starting point. And it's backwards that we look and find purpose and meaning, not in finding some happy future direction where there's a twist in the plot and everything is all right in the end. The heresy of Disney. I think the other thing that might rule our hearts is data, productivity. I got a smartwatch for my birthday that I've actually lost, so I can't show you as an illustration. So imagine I have a smartwatch on my wrist. Um, and it constantly tells me, right, if I'm not keeping up with my steps. In fact, sometimes if I'm sat still for too long, it isn't polite, it isn't kind. It just vibrates on my wrist and says, move. <laughs> it just tells me. And actually, we're in a society where um, productivity is king, where everything is about producing more and more and more, where there's articles about biohacking, how you can change your body so that you can be more productive. You can sleep less, sleep at the right times, do work in the right ways. But actually, this has taken on a religious fervor because actually we feel guilty now when we're not productive. We feel guilty when we procrastinate or don't do things. It feels sinful. And people are actually anxious and paralyzed by this anxiety. Do you ever feel this? Do you ever feel this in church? Never mind the world of work. Oh, I should be doing more. I'm not doing enough. But actually, we're not called to productivity. We are called to Sabbath rest. We're called to living out of abundance. We're called to living out of identity. That's the whole point of a Sabbath, to stop, to disrupt the working week, 
and say, I am not a slave, but I'm a child of God. My purpose is bound in the one who rescued me, not in the output of what I do. It's another heresy, the heresy of data. Or there's the heresy of desire, to be true to ourselves, to feed our every desire in an autoplay generation. My wife and I have started watching uh, a popular TV series about 10 years after everyone else. And in the space of about a month, we've got through about four seasons already of just watching and watching and autoplay, right? On your Netflix, on your Skybox, on YouTube, autoplay, autoplay, the next video. And that's the sort of society we're in. What's next? What's next? What's the next thing to consume? What's the next thing to tick off? And actually, our hearts are not called to be ruled by the Disneyfication of life and happy endings. Are not called to be ruled by data, by what we output, by what we produce. Even kingdom data. Even churches that get obsessed with attendance and congregations and numbers and conferences. Our heart is not called to be ruled by desire. Our heart is called to be ruled by the peace of Christ. To which indeed you were called in one body, Paul says. What's the antidote? Well, actually, part of the antidote Paul seems to put in here is true community. Is to belong with others. Let your heart be ruled by the peace of Christ to which you were called in one body. This is a communal thing. One thing that struck me was that often we talk about church as not being a building. But really what we mean a lot of the time when we talk about going to church is going to a service. Something that's movable, a rhythm. But all of the New Testament images of the church are permanent, fixed things that always exist, right? Because I think we're not called to go to the church. We're called to live out of that all the time, to live in community. Biblically, we express and experience the love of God together. Just as biblically, again and again, it shows that we experience grace, not just in receiving it from God, but in giving and receiving it with other people. That's the true gift of grace. That's the peace of Christ. He himself is our peace. He broke down the dividing wall of hostility. And then we come to kind of the genius part of this. And be thankful. And be thankful. You'll notice in each of these verses, 15, 16, 17, this phrase comes again. And be thankful. With thankfulness in your hearts to God. Giving thanks to God the Father through him. And I thought that was really significant. I was thinking about how in Philippians, the letter that Paul writes in, pl- in prison, what's the word that occurs again and again and again? Rejoice, joy, happiness, true happiness that comes from God the Father, right? Rejoice. But in Colossians, where Paul seems to be writing primarily to address kind of false teaching, people putting other people on Christ's throne, what's the word that he uses the most? Thankfulness, gratitude. It's almost like Paul is saying, in suffering we should be joyful, but in doubt and distraction we should be grateful. That's a profound thought, isn't it? 
Because what is gratitude but perspective? What is gratitude but understanding who we are in Jesus? That the key to this isn't effort, but it's enjoyment. It's acceptance. It's gratefulness. It's literal glass half full living. It's going, wow, what a gift I have. We'll return to that, but I think there's a significance. Paul's writing in Colossians to a community surrounded by worship of Caesar, surrounded by worship of angels, surrounded by people wanting to draw them back into legalism. I think I've said this to you before, but by my count, there's about 38 different theories of what the Colossian heresy is across different commentaries. We don't know, right? But Paul's clearly trying to address this, and I think we're in a similar place, right? I opened up my paper to vote this morning, and it was as long as my arm with different candidates. Has anyone else voted? That's kind of the state of play today, and I can't say I was that much clued up over which one to vote for, right? We're in a confused state where there's so many things we can look at. And Paul writes to a confused church in Colossians, and he says, be grateful, be grateful. Have a perspective that is grateful for Jesus rather than focused on the other things. Paul goes on, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Um, me and my community that I'm a part of, we go through John Wesley's Holy Club questions. And one of the questions that John Wesley and his friends in the Holy Club used to ask each other every time they met is, did the Bible live in me today? Did the Bible live in me today? And last week I spoke about this, that when we speak about exploring the love of the gospel... That this isn't something that we are kind of externally growing through, but actually it's something growing in us. It's something shaping and forming us. Is it dwelling in us? That phrase, the word of Christ, is quite uh, an interesting phrase, isn't it? Does it mean the words of Christ? His teachings in the Gospels? Does it mean the word, the Bible? Does it mean the gospel of Christ? the truth of his death and resurrection and saving power? I think the answer is yes. All of that. Let it dwell in us. Let it live in us. Let it overflow from within us. Teaching and admonishing one another in what all wisdom, Paul says. And again, we looked at this last week. To let the word of Christ grow in us is not just to add fertilizer that we might grow, but it's also to be pruned. It's to be warned and challenged, to warn and challenge each other from the word. In all wisdom, the Bible talks of all life, not just read the Bible and understand how you should sing on a Sunday, but read the Bible and think about how you should live every single part of your life. Are we pruning and challenging each other? I don't know if we are enough in our churches, friends. I don't know if we get so good at gathering together and singing together that we really don't speak into each other's lives with enough authority but we should shouldn't we we should and not just in sermons in fact probably least of all in sermons maybe sermons should be a place where we proclaim the hope of the gospel and actually it's those kind words as we speak and encourage admonish and challenge one each other one another over coffee that is the real heart of this singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. 
with thankfulness in your hearts to God. You'll notice I put this singing uh, under the heading of exploring the love of God, not experiencing, because actually we become what we worship. We grow the word of Christ within us. How we worship, who we worship shapes us. As an aside here, uh, this is probably something we could talk about for ages, but it's interesting that Paul lists three types of song here. Singing psalms, singing the words of God, singing the scriptures, singing hymns. Hymns was a word not just used by the early Christians, but also used by the pagans. And they were songs of the greatness of their God, singing of the deeds of what they had done, declarative worship. And the third one, spirit-filled songs, spiritual songs. I think there's three types of worship there. Singing the scriptures, declaring the goodness of God, and singing out to God in the spirit what he's doing in and amongst us. Living worship directed by him and his spirit in us. I think we need all three of those in our worship, right? I think sometimes as churches we tend to pick one of those, whichever is our favorite. But all of that is worship. With thankfulness in our hearts to God. Pruning is painful, but we should do it with gratitude. The word for thankfulness is the same as the root for, for grace. Charity. Cutting away the deadness. It's pruning for growth. It's a good thing. To be teached and admonished and challenged and pruned is to grow. It's a, it's a positive process. And we're coming into land now. How do we express the love of Jesus? Whatever you do in word or deed. It's interesting that that word is translated as deed, actually, because it's the word uh, ergon, works. Your word or your works. We probably... Translate it deed, because when we think of works, we think of works of the law and some of Paul's other arguments. But actually, it's the works of the kingdom. Whatever word or works that you do, whatever you speak with your mouth or do with your hands, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. So here we come to the heart of discipleship. Our life is not one of Disney, of data, of desire, but it's one of devotion to Jesus. Not in our name, not in our church's name, but in the name of Jesus. Giving thanks to God the Father through him. In our word and in our works, we express gratitude to God through Jesus. We don't do word and works to get his gratitude, to get his thankfulness, to get his salvation. We have that, right? In our word and our works, we express gratitude to God through Jesus. Experiencing the love of Jesus in our hearts. Exploring the depths of his love as we allow the word of Christ to dwell in us richly. And expressing the love of Christ as we go out and everything that we do, whether it's putting down the toilet seat for the person behind you or doing that spreadsheet at work, or sharing the words of the gospel and hope, doing it all in the name of Jesus, doing it all with gratitude. Should we sing and be grateful to God together? Amen. Let's stand.